you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16. As we are now observing Paul on his second missionary journey, it's been pretty interesting to, to study Paul's life and his mission-filled work. Paul is a, quite the unique character in his diversity of, of, of nationality. He was both Jewish-born, both Roman citizen-born. He was well-versed in Greek culture, in Roman culture, and well-studied in the Jewish religion. And with all of this, with all the success that he had, before he knew Christ as his Lord and Savior, he was lost. Until God got a hold of his life on the road to Damascus and turned this murderer of a, of a man into this great man of God. A Christian. As we've been studying Paul on his missions work, what we observe is that he would go, led by the Spirit, waiting upon the Spirit. He would go when God would tell him. And he is now on his way visiting the churches that he had formerly started with Paul. It is because of Paul that in Europe, they began to know of the gospel. He went up there near Asia, and there in Europe, and then in Greece. And Paul's impact in the world still reaches to us today. Even in those nations to this day, you can see all these churches that people have started now under the name of Paul. And it was his practice to first go to the synagogue, to first preach to the Jews. And as he would preach to them of this Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah, the one they were waiting for, some Jews would believe wholeheartedly and then follow after him, while others were kind of bothered by this new doctrine of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And as we watch Paul, sometimes this would cause him to run into situations where he would be beaten for his belief, for his preaching. He'd be imprisoned. We're going to read about some of this today. But Paul still continued despite the adversity. We recognize that as Paul would journey in the mission field, that he was a tent maker. Paul, when he would go to a, a village, a town, in order so that he would not have anyone a, a accuse him of being greedy or of, of taking from the church, Paul had a strong conviction to work for his own provision. So whenever he would go into a town and stay there for some time, he would get into his tradesmanship, which was tent making. He would make tents for people, sell them, and that was his secular job. And he would do it as unto the Lord, knowing that this was going to help further the kingdom, to help further the gospel mission. 
And we've been watching now as Paul is used by the Spirit greatly, yet still being a human. He came into this disagreement with Barnabas, if you guys remember on the last study. Him and Barnabas were in a disagreement over who to bring on the next missions field, on the next, next missions trip. You see, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark, but Paul was upset that Mark had left them right in the middle of their first missionary journey. And their anger and contention between Paul and Barnabas became so great that they were saying, look, okay, I'm going to take Mark with me, Barnabas said. And then Paul said, all right, well, I'm going to take Silas with me and we're going to go. And so what God ended up doing because of this is he created two now missionary projects and he had them now spread the gospel even more so than it would have been if it was just one on one trail. And this is where we pick up Paul and Silas on their missionary journey Beginning with Acts chapter 16, we start with verse 1. It says, Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra, and Iconium. So now in Acts chapter 16, we have this introduction to the man named Timothy. There are books in the Bible named after Timothy, and these are letters that Paul would later write to Timothy. They were the last letters that Paul would write to Timothy. Timothy would become like a son to Paul. As Paul discipled Timothy, Paul would say in his letters that he had no one more like-minded to himself than Timothy. Timothy, his name, its literal meaning is one that honors God or one honored by God. And both are true of this disciple, Timothy. Now, Timothy was a common name among the Greek people of the time. What's interesting about Timothy is also there was a division in his ethnicity. His father was a Greek and his mother was Jewish. Now, Timothy, because of his mother and his grandmother, we read from the Bible that he was taught the scriptures at a young age by his grandmother and his mother. We don't read too much about his father. We're not sure if his father passed away when he was young or just wasn't in the picture. But the scriptures and the word of God that was implemented into Timothy's life as a young age later on would bear fruit in his life that he would cause greatness, the glory of God to be preached throughout Asia. And it was Timothy who was one of Paul's converts there in Lystra on the first missionary journey. And what I see is this progression of of a young man who was taught at a young age. I'm reminded that we are to begin to teach our children 
at a young age so that when they grow, if they should depart from the way, the Bible teaches us that they will return because they know the truth. It was embedded in their hearts and in their minds at a very young age, as was with Timothy. And then as Timothy was growing older and becoming into mature, mature young man, he came across Paul on his first missionary journey. And Paul poured into him the truth. And so much so that now it's the second missionary journey and Paul comes across Timothy again. And he's like, oh, this is the young man I I ministered to on the first trip. But now he's ready to be come alongside Paul. You know, sometimes when it comes to discipleship, sometimes God will place a person in your life that you are going to disciple, and maybe it's just not time yet. So you wait, you pray, and you make yourself available for the Lord to use. And then you pray for that young person. Now in verse 3, It says, Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. So as Paul and Timothy now are are journeying, Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him. Now, Last week, if you recall at the beginning of the chapter, we talked about how Paul went to the apostles and elders of the Christian church and there was this conference sort of that they had about whether circumcision was going to be made a rule for the Gentile believers. And at the end of this, they ruled no, We're not going to put them under this yoke of bondage of the old law, but that Christ has given them freedom. So perhaps we're wondering, well, why did Paul then take Timothy and have him circumcised? This is not a a little boy we're talking about here. This is a man. First of all, it tells me that Timothy is super devoted to the cause. But uh, I recognize this. That Paul and Timothy both understood, they knew that the weakness of the Jewish unbelievers would cause them to turn away if they saw Timothy trying to give them the message, the gospel message. So in order that it, it wouldn't be a stumbling block to any of the unbelievers, Timothy went along with it. He submitted to the, the leading of Paul's wisdom In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of this characteristic that a Christian should have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it says in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. Again, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, it says, To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, 
that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. So there's going to be times in our life when we will feel that we have Christian liberties and the ability to express these liberties. But a more expedient, a better way is to not let those liberties ever stumble somebody who is weak in the faith. Paul talks about uh, vegetarians and people who ate meat in his writings. He tells them, look, if you have the, the freedom to eat meat, don't hold it over a vegetarian and make them feel bad when you're eating that double-double. And for the vegetarians, he said, well, and also don't try to bring the meat eaters into bondage. And that, in that same way, we are not to lay our personal convictions upon other people. But we are to be careful not to stumble others. So we continue on in Acts 16 verse 4. It says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So they're giving them the word of God. These decrees that he's referring to were those things that they they spoke of to abstain from things polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. That was the simple rules they wanted these Gentile Christians to now follow. They don't have to go through all the Leviticus and the the Old Testament laws anymore. They just say, hey, look, stay away from fornication, from eating, eating and drinking the blood of animals. And then in verse five, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. See, the word of God was their source of strength. It's not a a church program that they ran. They didn't draw up the vision board and get Tony Robbins' means of success to try to start their church there in, in Asia. But they simply taught the word of God. And the strong sheep began to spread and bring others. And healthy sheep beget healthy, healthy sheep. (laughs) Tongue twister. But it's true. When there's mature believers, evangelism comes naturally. I don't have to preach on evangelism every week. And I don't have to guilt trip anyone into making sure that every week that they're bringing a new believer. We should. I mean, by all means, if the Lord opens the door, please do. But I'm not going to try to guilt trip the flock. I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to do that work naturally. When you simply ask God to open those doors in your life, just watch how he opens the doors for conversation. Now in verse 6, it says, Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit 
to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So we wonder, as these men were journeying to give the gospel, why is it that the Holy Spirit had forbidden them to go into these different nations? Now, perhaps miraculously, the Holy Spirit appeared to them and said, do not go into Asia. But I don't find it likely that the Spirit led them in that manner. It's more likely that the Spirit worked supernaturally through the natural. Perhaps Paul, because he battled with sickness and with eye disease at a certain point, had to stay back and and stay put. And the Holy Spirit simply closed the door for the ability for them to preach the word in Asia. You know, sometimes we see these closed doors as disappointments, not realizing they are God's divine appointments, that God is leading them through these closed doors, allowing them to wait upon him to be placed exactly where God wants them to be placed. In verse eight, so passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, Immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So as Paul is there in Troas, in the middle of the night, he has this this vision. The Bible teaches about men and women having visions, and I think it's quite awesome. I have never experienced a vision, but I I would think it would be quite an awesome experience. The closest thing, I've had dreams that God had used in my life as sort of a warning at times. But this vision that they have, it's something entirely different. It's a, a heavenly experience. This prophetic word In this case, this man of Macedonia is pleading with Paul saying, look, come to Macedonia, help us. And then there is an interesting shift in the writings of the book of Acts. Do you guys remember who wrote the book of Acts? Anyone? Luke wrote the book of Acts, correct. 10 points for Sal. (laughs) So as you read the book of Acts, he constantly will have these tenses of saying they went here, they went there. Paul did this, Paul did that. And suddenly here now, in verse 10, he begins to say we. And he begins to now include himself in this group of men. Because Luke himself 
would join these apostles here on the mission journey. There are even Bible scholars who believe that it's likely that it was Luke in the vision that Paul had. Because when Paul finally meets with Luke, suddenly Paul, it's confirmed in his heart, we need to go to Macedonia. It's time to go. And Luke would be a great physician for Paul. He would be Paul's brother to come alongside and to help him. As Paul had many physical ailments, it was good to have Luke, a doctor there, who would be able to help him with this. And it's interesting that once God gives this confirmation to Paul on where to go, that the ministry done in the region of Macedonia proves to be super fruitful as we are about to read right now in verse 11. It says, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, as they're journeying, I do want to note that they go to the riverside and there's these women there and they begin to, to talk with them, to minister unto them. And I see how the women who are Christian in the Bible who are mentioned are, are used mightily by God. I see that there's a freedom and a liberty that Christ has brought to women in the Jewish culture as well. In that Eastern culture there, women had the honor value next to animals at times. That was their, their culture, not the religion, but the culture. And who do we see Jesus talking to, ministering to? Who do we see as the people who first came to Jesus' grave? those who were there at the cross of Jesus, it's women. In that culture, if people were to have made up the gospel, if it was a lie, and the Jewish authors were creating this lie of a religion, they wouldn't have mentioned women being so close to Jesus. The reason being is because of that reason that the Eastern culture saw the women as a lower class citizen. But because it's what really happened, because it's truth, the Jewish writers wrote exactly what happened, that the women were there, that they were used. Now, one interesting woman pops up now in verse 14. It says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. 
So we have Lydia, and she's dealing with this fine linen, this purple cloth, which was made from this shellfish from the Aegean Sea. And it was valued at a high cost because of its, because of its beautiful dye, this purple dye. Even the Jewish priesthood, they would have their garments and the fringes of their garments dyed in purple. And Lydia was, was probably in line with the same work. It was an expensive linen material. And this woman seemed to be successful, but where do we see her in the Bible? She's at the riverside, at the place where they pray. And it says now in verse 15, And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So Lydia hears Paul's preaching and sees, man, this is, this is a man sent from God, preaching of Jesus. And so we see now her hospitality. She asked them, like, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, not that she doubted that that was their view of her, but that she was humble in her asking. She has this hospitality in her and hospitality is a spiritual practice that we are to have as Christians. She persuades them to stay with her so that she might tend for their needs. In 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 9 through 10 we are urged by Peter to be hospitable to one another without grumbling as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, if I'm to be hospitable, that means I must have my house in order. You see, I, I can't have chaos in the house and then try to be hospitable. There has to be an order in the house. Again, in Hebrews 13, verse 2, it says, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So perhaps when we're going through the streets of LA, I don't know if you guys do that, but I do that for, for work. Sometimes we see homeless people. And we need to have discernment. I oftentimes, uh, I won't, give money to, to a homeless person oftentimes, but if I'm given the opportunity to offer someone food, I'll offer to pay for a meal. And I let them know, hey, this is because of Jesus' love. And who knows? Who knows if there's an angel in disguise around us? Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, he says, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach. So do you want to lead your family? Do you want to lead others? Do you want to be a bishop in your home? Meaning the spiritual leader? Be hospitable. 
someone who cares about the needs of others. It says now in verse 16, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. So now they're coming across what it was very common in Greek culture, which is the cultic practices, the pagan practices, witchcraft, divination. That word of divination, it, the Greek word for it is python in the Greek. And in Greek mythology, the name of the Pythian serpent or dragon that dwelt in that region of Pytho was said to have guarded the oracle of Delphi and had been slain by Apollo. And this is embedded in their culture to this day, much uh, mythology, much witchcraft. And they come across this slave girl who's possessed by a spirit. Now possession only happens for the non-believers. As a believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit, once the Holy Spirit is in you, there cannot be a demonic presence. You cannot be possessed. Now you can be oppressed as a believer, meaning there's spiritual attacks against you. That's oppression. And many times oppression will lead to depression. But as a believer, one great truth that we have is that we cannot be possessed. We cannot be taken over. So this woman is possessed. And there are even people who have interpreted this divination to be something related to a ventriloquist, meaning that she was able to throw her voice different places. It says now in verse 17 about her, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Now this demon-possessed woman is proclaiming to people Paul's mission and the God whom they served and even the gospel way of salvation. Now whether she would say this in the intent to make Paul and his companions be disliked by other people or whether by some act of God the demonic spirit was compelled to proclaim the truth, we're not sure. But what we are sure about is that Paul, like many of us, became greatly annoyed. And how many times do we get greatly annoyed? But this is a righteous annoying. Sometimes we are grieved when we see false teachers or, or people who are stealing the sheep away, God's people, who are harming God's people. We become greatly annoyed. Now this woman would have brought confusion amongst the people Paul was seeking to minister to because here she is, this woman in pagan practices and she would tell fortunes and yet she's also saying the truth of the gospel. You know, the, the worst kind of cults are those cults that have much truth in it 
mixed with just a little bit of a lie. The, the Mormon religion is one of those religions that it seems like everything about it is what we believe, except this one major point is that they deny Jesus as the Son of God. They, they deny Jesus as God. They don't think that Jesus is God. They think he is just the Son and he's not the, the way to the Father. But our Bible teaches us that Jesus and God are one. You cannot deny Jesus as, as God. If you do so, you deny the Father entirely. So it's that majority of truth with just a little bit of a lie that oftentimes is such a danger. It says in verse 18, again, And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. You see, there's power in the name of Jesus. We should be using the name of Jesus for his work to be done. Praying in the name of Jesus. Bringing up his name in conversation. It says in verse 19, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. You see, the world was using this woman so that they could gain out of their own greed. And the moment that Paul brought righteousness into the lives of people, they wanted to throw him into jail. And in verse 20, And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. You see, to the Romans, because they were under this Roman nation, it was not lawful to receive, observe, or worship a new or strange deity without the decree of the Senate. You see, whenever there's those laws that go against the law of God, we must obey God. Now, God also teaches us that we are to submit to government, but if the government tells us that we are to go against God, then we must obey God still. Now, in verse 22, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding that the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Sometimes we're going to come against persecution. And sometimes in our life, it's going to feel like we're not even in the prison that's close to being let free, but in the inner prison, the deepest part of that 
hole of that prison. I did get to visit one of the jails that Paul was placed into. And it was this hole in the floor that led into this circular room that was very small. Probably as, as big as this easy up canopy was the size of the room. And there thrown into the, the pit of that hard floor, rock floor, Paul would stay there for close to seven years towards the end of his life. And you think, man, how, how did he survive that? He had to be some sort of tough cookie that God just created out of him. And here, what Paul is experiencing is just one of the times that he would be thrown in jail. As they were there with their feet fastened in the stocks, I'm reminded that there is a persecution that we know nothing about. There's the real persecution that is out there against people, Christian believers around the world who are dying for their faith. And it's happening today. Our persecution, it's small in comparison. But we do face it. When I proclaim that I believe in the sanctity of life, that life begins in the womb because that's what God says. When I proclaim that I'm pro-life, I will be persecuted. When I proclaim that marriage, according to God, is between a, a husband and a wife, in no other way, I, I will be persecuted. When I proclaim that Jesus is the only way we can make it into heaven, I will be persecuted. And so will you. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, Jesus spoke on persecution. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, we have eternal rewards that are being stored up in heaven when we go through these trials, when we go through persecution. So I encourage us in this season, with a lot of division in our nation, in our families, our friends, our coworkers, to endure persecution to stand for truth. Now you don't need to go to your coworkers and completely slap them with the Bible. But if they ask you, you need to be prepared to give them an answer. In verse 25, it says, but at night, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. 
So here's what's interesting. What did Paul and Silas do when they were being persecuted, when they were in the jail? They worshiped the Lord. And it says, and then in verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosened. So imagine this scene, they're, they're thrown, they're whipped, they're beaten, they're thrown in the jail and they're there singing, praying to God. And suddenly as they're there, this earthquake starts to shake and the doors are open, their shackles are undone. And they realize this is happening because of God. I remember one time there was an earthquake during a Friday night study that kind of scared all of us. And Chris is like, yeah, I was there. And all of a sudden, like, if you saw that video to this day, you would see me just like, because oh, it was long <laughs> on the camera. But God, again, working supernaturally through the natural. It says in verse 27, And the keeper of the prison awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. You see, the Roman punishment for allowing your prisoner to escape was that you would receive the punishment that was intended for your prisoner. If any of these men were on death row, or if they were to be beaten, this guard realized that that was about to be his punishment. He was about to take it all. So realizing this, he figured it'd be better that he just ended his life right then and there. But Paul, and the love that he had, called out saying, hey, we're all here. No one's left. See, Paul and his brothers, they knew that God had called them to be ministers to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. It says in verse 29, Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. You see, the witness Paul and Silas had before the Philippian jailer, how they worshiped God, and how they stayed because of their faith in God. This caused this jailer to come to them, trembling, It says in verse 30, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And it's a good question to know the answer to. For people in our life who are at that moment where God has broken through, has convicted them, and they they are desiring to have an eternity with him. And I'm looking at what was it that impacted this jailer so much? And I think it was that Paul and Silas were in the most terrible situation, yet they were worshiping God. That they had suffered much, but because the hope that this jailer saw in them, he asked them, how is it that you have this hope And people are going to ask you that when you endure suffering with joy. Doesn't mean we need to be happy. 
But when you have the peace of God in your life, when you have that joy in your life, people notice that though you're going through a hard time, there's something different about the way you handle hard things. And they will wonder, what is it about this man, about this woman, that they can endure such suffering and still come to work and be joyful, still smile at a family party? How is it that they're not freaking out? And that's when you share with them the love of Christ. In verse 31, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. See, belief, there needs to be an accepting of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we could see there's evidence when someone is saved. We could see the fruits of the Spirit coming from their life. It's not that we know, I don't know 100% if someone is saved. Because I don't know someone's life when they're not around me. But I see evidence that God has saved certain people. In verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes And immediately he and all his family were baptized. See, in verse 31, I I do recognize that Paul was speaking prophetically into this jailer's life. He said, you and all your household will be saved because God was speaking through him. God knew that him and his family were going to be baptized. See, the Bible also teaches us that we each have to give account for our own salvation, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And I'm recognizing how radical it is how God changes people. It says in verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. More hospitality. In verse 35, we're going to finish this chapter. And when it was day, the magistrates sent to the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, And they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. See, because of Paul's citizenship as a Roman, it was illegal for him to have been beaten without trial. And later this attribute of Paul would actually spare him in the future from being beaten by another Roman officer. We'll read about that later on. And these men who beat him were actually now in danger of being in trouble by the Roman government. It says then, so in verse 39, 
Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So they basically said, look, please don't tell anybody what we did to you. And Paul and Silas continued their journey. They go back to Lydia, the woman who made the, the purple garments, who accepted Christ. Much hospitality going on. But Paul would continue his missionary journey. Next week, we're going to read about when he would go up to the Areopagus there over in Greece, this giant hill, Mars Hill. I want to preach to the Greeks, the pagans, about the breath of God. And I, I'm, I'm moved in Paul's spirit of evangelism. And I'm impressed that we, as Christians, have this great opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can be used however he desires, however he wants, whatever gifts and talents he's given you, what opportunities that may come your way. I'm encouraged that with persecution, there is reward. To endure persecution as a soldier, ready to go into battle. And that's what I see when I look out. May God fill you this week with his spirit. May you be filled with his joy, his peace, knowing that his closed doors are better for you than the doors that you want to be opened. And may you remember that Christ has given you a life full of love because he died on the cross for you. In fact, I'm going to ask that that you would call my mom to bring the communion out as we end this morning with communion. We're going to remember what Christ did on the cross for us. We're going to have communion. And as we partake of communion, may you use this as a reminder. If there's things that you want God to have his Holy Spirit help you with, things in your life that you want the Holy Spirit to take control of. There are miracles that take place when you remember that it's the blood of Christ who cleanses us from sins. There is freedom when we submit ourselves to Jesus. There is hope. There is new life. Oftentimes, too, there's, we've seen it before where, thank you, where God will use this communion as a, as a time to, to heal. So if you're here this morning and, and you, you want to stand for, for healing, if there's someone in your life you would like to stand for, um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to have communion. Um, 
So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, Lord, that we can get together to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we thank you for what your son has done on the cross, the removal of our sins. I pray, Father, for those who are standing now for healing in their life, for healing in the life of one of their loved ones, of someone they know. I ask that your Holy Spirit would touch them spiritually, give them strength. God, do your work that we cannot do, that we can't see. May you increase our faith. Bless that man and woman. And Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity. I'm going to read to you guys real quick in 1 Corinthians 11. You don't need to turn there, but Paul says this. He said, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. Let's all stand for this. As we stand, we're going to partake of the communion. He says in verse 24, And gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke bread He broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's all partake of the bread. Thank you, Jesus. Again, he says, In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, supposing this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. So let's partake of the the juice. And dear God, we thank you that there is freedom in you. We thank you that there is love in you, Father. There is healing. May you go before us this week, Father. Fill us with your spirit. We rejoice in the opportunities that you give us. I thank you, Father. I thank you for this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's end with one more song. Your love is devoted Like a ring of solid gold Like a vow that is tested Like a covenant of old Your love is enduring Through the winter rain And beyond the horizon With mercy for today Faithful you have been Faithful you will be You pledge yourself to me And it's why I sing Your praise will 
ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Man, all right. I'll see you guys Wednesday night via live stream. Blessing to be here with you guys. Love you.